0: As a listener to this podcast, we know that you enjoy learning for the pure pleasure of learning. That's what The Great Courses Plus is all about. You'll have unlimited access to watch their huge library of fascinating video lectures. You can learn from award-winning experts about the topics that interest you, like history, art, literature, or you can pick up new hobbies like photography or playing the guitar. And right now, The Great Courses Plus is offering listeners to this podcast a full month of free video lectures. All you have to do is sign up using the special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash brett. That's B-R-E-T with one T. With this free trial, you can watch any of their thousands of lectures, including the course The Art of Storytelling, which explores the history and psychology behind certain narratives with the tools to help you enhance your own storytelling skills. Check this out, and maybe you'll start your own podcast one day. You can stream The Great Courses Plus from any smartphone, tablet, laptop, or TV, or you can download the videos and watch them offline. Brett Easton Ellis listeners can start watching for free today. All you have to do is sign up with this special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash brett. Come on, start your free month now. You're going to love this. Sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash brett. That's B-R-E-T. There's a whole lot of good things happening on the Podcast One Forbes Network. Forbes U30 is a show about young innovators, disruptors, and entrepreneurs, like the minimalists Joshua and Ryan, electropop artists like Lights, CBS Search Party star Charles Rogers, the women of YouTube's Clever TV, plus many more. And the Forbes interview is a deep dive into the minds of the folks who could be on the cover of the magazine, like Tinder founder Sean Radd, hero pilot Captain Sully Sullenberg, Moneyball author Michael Lewis, pop star Jason Derulo, and the list goes on and on. Subscribe or listen to Forbes U30 and the Forbes interview now on on the Podcast One app, Apple Podcasts, or PodcastOne.com. The following program is a Podcast PodcastOne.com production.
1: My computer thinks I'm gay. I threw that piece of junk away. On the shore, Elysees As I was walking home. This is my last communique down the super highway all that i have left to say in a single tome i got too many
2: I'm Brett Easton Ellis, and you're listening to the Brett Easton Ellis Podcast. And I'm here at the Podcast One studios in Beverly Hills with my guest, the producer, Dana Bernetti. So we're recording this podcast on the Tuesday after Memorial Day, after not posting uh, a podcast since Walter Hill about three weeks ago. And sometimes I have my doubts about keeping the ruse, this charade up. This is a podcast that started out about movies and movie culture. Uh, Where is it at? Where is it going? Let's discuss. And I can barely get it up most weeks because American movie culture is done. And I don't believe anything has replaced it in terms of what film does best in terms of, you know, excitement or artistry. And so sometimes... I feel we're at a standstill. Since we started recording this podcast in November of 2013 with our first guest, Kanye West, who wanted to come on the podcast to talk about, yes, movies. Things were very different then in the fact that there was still the remnants of an American film culture that was still part of a broad conversation about movies. People were still seeing a certain kind of movie in a theater, and TV had yet to fully surpass the quality level of the best of American film. TV economics dictated what could and could not be done visually with the camera, letting the camera be a character as it is in most movies, supplying mood and atmosphere, and TV was all about the writing. The showrunner was the auteur of a TV show and not a director, which is why so much of TV might not sound exactly the same, but it pretty much looked the same. That is definitely changing. And I remember early in 2013, the cinematic look of the first two episodes of House of Cards on Netflix, directed by David Fincher, one of America's last and most stylish auteur filmmakers, and thinking, was this a one-off? Was Netflix actually going to emerge as the power player it has become in the last few years? There were doubts at the time that now seem foolish. TV or TV content or stuff made for TV consumption, stuff not made for the theatrical cinematic experience is changing. And you can see it in shows as diverse as season 1 of Atlanta to John Mark Valley's work on Big Little Lies on HBO this last spring too. Yes, now David Lynch, who hasn't made a movie in 9 years, let alone stepped in an actual movie theater or so he says, with his 18-hour continuation of Twin Peaks. And yet can I really tell the difference when someone directs an episode of The Leftovers or Girls? No, and that's what most of TV is still like. The visual template is arranged in the pilot, and then various directors simply try to adhere to that for the rest of the show's run. A director is essentially a gun for hire in TV land, and rarely is he considered an artist. He's a technician. This held true for The Sopranos and The Wire and Breaking Bad and on and on and on. Most of good TV still does not look as good as most good movies do. There's nothing on TV that looks as good as La La Land or Moonlight or Arrival. But that will definitely be changing. And it is changing. Movies and TV morphing into each other and simply becoming content. One art form becoming indistinguishable from another. And to complain about this, complaining about a lost art form, seems so old school. But we are where we are, and I find it hard at times to get enthusiastic about the current state of the art, how everything is just content. It's all going to be shot the same and viewed in the same way, the culmination of the dreaded democratization of the arts. Anyone can do it. Anyone can make it. We need more content, more content, more content. A lot of people listen to this podcast, and probably more would listen to it if I recorded it less erratically. But sometimes I'm distracted since there isn't an interesting movie culture at work in the U.S., and I forget to do a podcast. It's different in other countries, and the better movies I've seen in 2017 are mostly foreign. In Europe this past weekend was the Cannes Film Festival, where film was being celebrated in a defiantly European fashion. In other words, no one talks about money over the art of film. And what a crazy and eclectic mix was spinning around that competition. Some of those movies I can't wait to see. What does interest me now in American movies is spectacle, something that TV cannot compete with in visual terms. TV still reduces everything to the same common denominator, and basically everything resembles everything else on that monitor in your bedroom. There's very little grandeur or visual scope in American television, and I've noticed that my most pleasurable recent American movie-going experiences are ones that tilt toward massive spectacle on an almost parodic scale, whether it was The Fate of the Furious, dumb and not great, but the most sheerly enjoyable American movie I can remember seeing in a theater in years, and to a lesser degree the trippy comic psychedelica of Gardens of the Galaxy Volume 2, or The First Three-Quarters of Logan, or The Dark Grandeur Ridley Scott brought to Alien Covenant, an old-school classicism that was sorely lacking in the overly fancy script – And that little alien reboot that came out earlier this spring, starring Jake Gyllenhaal, innocently called Life. And that's the only innocent thing about this movie. And which is no great shakes, but the camera work is often sophisticated, opening with a remarkable floating tracking shot. And the design of the movie is stunning, and it has surprisingly stayed with me for months. It's CGI'd to death at times, but it was genuinely scary, with a surprise ending that can leave you queasy with dread. And it stayed on topic in a way. How do we get the fucking monster off the ship? That made Ridley Scott's new Alien movie seem ponderous by comparison. Space, endless space, the floating crew, the monster on the loose, the scary effects, no sweat from the writer's room trying to keep the damn thing alive for show after show after show. A director using the camera to tell the story and with a large enough budget to make sure the movie looks great and not like most TV hampered by economics. That is the current sweet spot for me. I'm increasingly at meetings or out with friends or at business dinners where I've noticed no one talks about current movies. And this isn't a loss because current American movies aren't that interesting. Okay, I got it. During the past two weeks, I counted the number of current movies that people I was interacting with had seen. Out of the dozens, just two people. The only two movies one person had seen in 2017 were from, in fact, 2016. La La Land, she didn't like, and Moonlight, she liked. And an entertainment reporter that was at a dinner I was at exchanged thoughts with me on the new Alien movie. He didn't like it. I'm starving for visual spectacle. And on a certain level, it delivered for me. And yes, I'm in the minority who actually liked Prometheus. But that was it. There were no conversations about movies anywhere. TV definitely, endlessly, everywhere. Shows constantly mentioned that I've never even heard of. But the movie conversation was always, aren't you done with movies yet? You still go to the movies? I told someone that Brad Pitt is starring in a Netflix movie that started streaming on Friday, and they looked at me blankly and had no idea what I was talking about. They had heard nothing about this movie, and they had no interest in seeing it, even though one of America's biggest movie stars is in it. I interviewed a well-known Oscar-nominated actor a week ago for a piece I'm writing about the actor, and who became tongue-tied when I asked him what new movies he'd seen recently. He racked his brain, or pretended to, and realized that the last movie he saw in a theater was... Moana. And no, he doesn't have kids. My boyfriend, the 30-year-old millennial, stopped coming with me to the movies a couple of years ago, vowing, after staggering out of a bloated Marvel epic, that this was the end for him. No more. Though he did dutifully see Moonlight and Manchester by the Sea, he thought they were okay. With that entertainment reporter that I just mentioned, as well as seeing La La Land, he thought it was okay. But lately for him, the video game is the new movie, the new novel. And playing Final Fantasy Fifteen has given him more entertainment pleasure than any new movie he's seen in the last seven years or so. And he's someone who loves 70s masterpieces ranging from The Last Picture Show to Barry Lyndon to Taxi Driver to McCabe and Mrs. Miller to Carrie. But new American movies now? No way. And what can I say? How can I entice him when I can barely entice myself? Hey, get up. Come on. Let's go see Kong Skull Island at 315. Hey, let's check out Anne Hathaway in Colossal. Don't you want to see Snatched? The loss and aimlessness some people feel about the end of the theatrical experience for a certain kind of movie is a product of two things. A creatively dead American movie culture and the fact that the supposed golden age of television is now over and has been officially over for some time now. There is no longer a golden age. There is now just simply the age of television. This doesn't mean there aren't some good, solid shows and some like Atlanta reaching somewhere higher than good. But when confronted with this massive sea of shows... What seems like thousands of them everywhere available at any time. Where do you begin? How do you locate what's good? Or is everything just awesome as so many cheerleaders on social media insist? And especially if a show dares not to have a different viewpoint rather than the smug groupthink ideology of the moment. Dear White People has a hundred percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Has everyone lost their mind? I watched the episode Barry Jenkins directed, and it's not his fault that the show looks dead and airless. That's just the template. Because a friend of mine was in it, the actor Nolan Funk. And my boyfriend and I knew within two minutes that we needed to escape the fake archness of the show, complete with fake TV banner and over-emphatic acting. Uh, my boyfriend flailed at the TV and asked, Who talks this way? What college kids talk like this? I stuck it out until the bitter end, but talk about ideology-trumping aesthetics. Yikes. And guess what else is 100% on Rotten Tomatoes? The dystopian feminist drama The Handmaid's Tale. And the less said about it, the better. And I I don't want to rain on anyone's parade. I know people involved with the show, but the show is pure ideology run amok, and its makers have encouraged everyone to view it that way. And, of course, the entertainment press has drunk the Kool-Aid and keep murmuring darkly that it's a show about Trump and his administration, even though the majority of white college-educated females voted for Trump. I guess they're not going to be watching with the other 47%. And the book was published in the early 1980s, and there had already been one very bad movie made from it. And well, my advice is just take a Xanax, guys. I find myself watching the first episode of many, many shows that are either being recommended to me on social media or by a friend or my mom or someone I know working on a show. And about 90% of the time, the show is either okay or quite terrible, or meh, and almost always, always visually uninteresting, which means, yes, a few good shows, but mostly just okay shows flopping around on the beach with an epic sea of crap behind them. Let's face it, there is nothing as great as The Sopranos or The Wire or Mad Men being produced anywhere on TV. That is... Age is gone. That, in a nutshell, was the very brief golden age of television. TV is now a giant system packed with hundreds upon hundreds of shows, and hundreds you haven't probably even heard of. I think there is something like 500 scripted shows vying for our attention in this moment, and maybe, just maybe, you've heard of some of them if you have been paying attention, very close attention. Most people wander through the wilderness and create their own viewing bubble. Television is now the movies, and movies increasingly are like television, serialized formats of the Marvel and Star Wars movies. The four movies I mentioned before are all part of an ongoing storyline. This is the eighth Fast and Furious movie. This is maybe the fifth or sixth or seventh alien narrative. Hugh Jackman has been playing Wolverine for something like 17 years in God knows how many X-Men and Wolverine movies. This is part two of The Guardians of the Galaxy, And there is going to be a third. And how do you parody something that you've already become? Writer-director James Gunn cleverly finds a way more often than not. And I laughed a lot with Volume 2 and became reconvinced about Chris Pratt's charm, which had gone M.I.A. in Jurassic World, The Magnificent Seven, and Passengers. So in a way, the movies have brought the TV experience into the cinema. And as I said before, the difference is that the only movies that offer the pleasures of the cinema-going experience Now, are mostly these big budget extravaganzas and spectacles. It is Logan until it's janky looking last quarter. It is Alien Covenant, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, and The Fate of the Furious. What you get from these movies, you can't get on TV. True, you're not getting an entire season of okay, well-written, expository dialogue moving the show forward in a series of close-ups and medium shots. But you are getting miles upon miles of fantastic hardware, superbly edited action set pieces cut with brutal efficiency for maximum impact, increasingly spectacular special effects that TV cannot even come close to accommodating. And the question becomes, who would want to see these sequences anyway on a small screen? HBO's expensive sci-fi reboot, Westworld, looks like an intimate drama compared to the climaxes of Alien Covenant and Guardians of the Galaxy Vol. 2, and especially the thrilling extended car chase brilliantly realized by F. Gary Gray and company that takes up what seems like the last third of the Fate of the Furious, pure kinetic movie making. Watching the pilot of Westworld, I thought, why is the script so complicated already? This is just so writer-roomy. What happened to the pleasures of Visual narrative. Why were we already at this complicated place in the very first hour of the show? The pilot of Westworld felt like what should have been episode 9 or 10 in season 2. It had already become so overly concerned about story and plot and narrative and reveals, all things connected to writing and show running and not directing, that I became disinterested as we moved into episode 2. And often TV shows just keep going. I know The Leftovers' third season is being lavishly overpraised as the best show on television now, and I like the first two seasons of The Leftovers. But while watching season three, I'm getting the creeping suspicion that we could have ended the show satisfyingly on that final moment in season two. A few times The Leftovers has had brilliant standalone episodes when it focuses on just one character, and sometimes... It's like an unusually and needlessly faithful Stephen King adaptation for a book King never wrote. Girls, one of the very best shows on TV, actually climaxed with its best season last year with season five. And it was a high watermark for any other show to rise above. When it premiered, Girls introduced a new cinematic tone and style never before seen on a TV comedy and which will be endlessly copied. And it actually sustained this artistry for six seasons. This season went the extra mile with its series finale, which should have been the brilliant wrap-up in the bathroom at Shoshana's party, the moment the show seemed to be heading towards since season one, how these young, self-preoccupied women were never going to be the band of sisters, other shows, and the culture itself likes to encourage. A kind of uncomplicated fantasy of sisterhood, a fantasy that girls always boldly rejected. This penultimate episode was a slap in the face of that kind of thinking and had a hard-eyed honesty that is a rarity in millennial culture and that Lena Dunham has always trafficked in. And there were very few scenes as stunning in TV last season as the one in the diner with the freshly reunited Hannah and Adam after spending the day together when they stop talking and the awful realization hits that they are not meant for each other. Just when we think Girls ends at Shoshana's party, we realize, wait, there's one more episode – And then we're upstate at the campus Hannah is teaching at while raising her baby with Marnie, and you're thinking, why are we here? As the episode went on, I kept thinking, unless Hannah is going to murder the baby and blame it on Marnie or her mother, then I'm not sure how interested I am in seeing how this turns out. This was a reminder that I began having while becoming immersed in TV that the best movies understand their format. The three most lauded movies from last year were movies uh, Moonlight, La La Land, Manchester by the Sea, that were contained to our experiences and were not going to benefit from 8 to 12 extra hours. And yet sometimes the new TV format of the six- or eight-hour movie has made me impatient with the theatrical experience because I realize sometimes that certain movies would have been much better as a miniseries. And they are distracting to sit through because by comparison to what TV can now allow, the eight-hour movie, they feel rushed to me and would have benefited from being longer, more fleshed out, digressive. Last spring's most talked-about miniseries were HBO's Big Little Lies and Fox's Betty Davis-Joan Crawford bitch-fest feud. Both of these were essentially eight-hour movies and had subjects that no movie studio would touch in a million years. Based on the novel by Leanne Moriarty, the eight hours it takes to tell Big Little Lies' story as a long movie is completely worth it, and it benefits from taking its time. And it's also more involving than your average TV miniseries because it has a sustained and unusually cinematic look, though often overstyled to death with watery slow-motion montages. And yet you couldn't help being aware that it didn't add up to much. It always seemed too light, too campy, or too aware of its supposed importance about domestic abuse which made the fun, shallow soap opera aspects of it all seem lopsided compared to how solemn and endless Nicole Kidman's therapy scenes were. And its ending, though a nice surprise, was also oddly weightless and too neatly resolved. And the miniseries seemed scared to go to the next uncomfortable episode, which was a scene perhaps with the Nicole Kidman character and Shailene Woodley's character. The show just ended with a fakie woman empowerment vibe when the show was always at its most interesting and real when it was questioning that vibe. It made you think about how Lena Dunham might have dealt with this material, as well as noting that a man wrote the entire adaptation and a man directed all eight hours of Big Little Lies. But regardless, Big Little Lies was a reminder that TV and movies are going to be interchangeable. Ryan Murphy's feud doesn't have a cinematic look, but it was spellbinding, even though it was selling fake camp. And because it was eight hours, it could take its time and go places it could never have gone in a shorter, condensed theatrical version. The Joan Crawford storyline culminated in one of the saddest, most haunting and best-directed sequences I saw on TV this year, Joan filming the dismal horror movie Trog in England at the end of the 1960s, a long way down from where she once was at. As Jim Morrison sings The End over the montage of Joe quietly, drunkenly falling apart on set. There is no way any studio would ever greenlight the story about the feud between middle-aged actresses Betty Davis and Joan Crawford while making whatever happened to Baby Jane. And I'm grateful that Ryan Murphy and Fox put this eight-hour movie together, even though I know people who loathed it because of its portrayal of director Robert Aldrich, played by Alfred Molina, as Desperate Hack, and that Susan Sarandon was too lightweight as Betty Davis. That was the reason my boyfriend stopped watching the show after the um, first episode, uh, as well as not being able to bear the famous Ryan Murphy camp factor. Though for some reason, this time out, it didn't bother me, and I found the story storytelling and the detours it took, completely riveting and compelling. Feud is another example of the possibilities of the new medium, of the morphing of the TV and the cinematic experience. I guess what I'm saying is that I would prefer the eight hours it took to tell Big Little Lies and Feud over a condensed two-hour version of these stories. This is increasingly happening, and maybe this is why so many American movies feel puny by comparison. There are so many shows available that when I often ask someone relatively tuned into the TV landscape what they think about a certain show that was recommended to me from someone else relatively tuned into the TV landscape – They often have not even heard of the show, let alone watched an episode. The choices are overwhelming, and it seems like everyone is watching something you haven't heard about. Have you watched 13 Reasons Why? Have you seen Fauda? Have you watched The Santa Clarita Diet? Will and Grace is coming back, and so is Roseanne. And let's bring back Fear Factor. Have you watched Orphan Black or Ray Donovan or Black Mirror? What's Difficult People? Oh, yeah, yeah, I binge-watched that show last year. I didn't recognize the title. Are we drowning in content, entertaining ourselves to death? Both Michael Crichton and David Foster Wallace prophesize this in their work. In fact, Westworld and Jurassic Park are about this, as is Infinite Jest, where a destructive film called The Entertainment lulls a viewer into watching content that is so mesmerizing a viewer can't stop watching until they die. I feel that way sometimes when I binge watch a show, something I am training myself not to do anymore, since I don't need to be reminded how close to death I am. The first season of that Glenn Close show from a few years back, Damages, was available, and it was a Sunday, and it had been highly recommended to us that weekend by a group of friends, and we thought we'd give it a shot early afternoon. We'll watch one episode and then we'll uh, go to the store and get some stuff for dinner. I have work to do later tonight. Uh, Maybe we'll watch a movie. Uh, I have a meeting, so I have to get up early. Uh, Cool. Okay, sounds good. I don't know how it happened. The show wasn't that great, but it was a machine designed to entrap you, and it was almost unpleasantly gripping. And it was set up in a way in which the mysteries were coming at you so convulsively that you had a primal physical need to get the answers and find out what happened next. It was an addiction. We failed to take showers, we failed to get out of bed, we failed to answer emails or texts or the phone. We failed to get to the market. One of us distractedly ordered takeout. We ate the takeout in bed. Disgusting. And dragged ourselves to the last episode of that season, sometime in the middle of the night. Just laying there in the dark like corpses, completely still. The only things animated in the room were our eyes reflecting the dark madness of damages playing out on the widescreen TV. Our faces, death masks, just staring, staring endlessly staring. What does this all have to do with the producer, Dana Burnetti? Well, Dana Burnetti was in 2012 one of the first people to prophesize this, that the TV and movie experience would become one, and places like Netflix and Amazon and Hulu would be actively making their own content and selling it, in fact, becoming their own studios, that this was the future, and it was simply inevitable, that web video will destroy the networks and conglomerates as we know it, and he was talking about this at a time when others were not. Dana Burnetti is one of only a few producers we've had on this podcast, including Jason Blum, and I think it's a good... Good idea to check in every now and then with a producer to see where everything is landing. And even though Jason Blum talked at length about where we are as a business and where we're going, this was two years ago, and things seemed to be happening so quickly that, to the layman, it might be hard to keep up. Brunetti started out as Kevin Spacey's executive assistant in the 90s and eventually was running Spacey's production company, Trigger Street, as well as becoming his producing partner. And Spacey has often publicly said how much he has appreciated Brunetti's common sense and bullshit radar. Brunetti has helped produce David Fincher's The Social Network, Captain Phillips, The 50 50- Shades of Grey trilogy, as well as being one of the producers of the TV series House of Cards that put Netflix on the map in 2013, and he has been nominated for two Oscars. Last year, Vanity Fair posted a piece about Brunetti called Dana Brunetti. Hollywood's most openly disliked and secretly beloved executive, and one is either a fan of his no-bullshit approach in a town that is very full, desperately full of bullshit and the fake pose, or you can either secretly or semi-secretly trash him. This This is most apparent and public if you check out the message boards of Deadline or The Wrap or Variety or The Hollywood Reporter. Whenever a piece of news about or involving Brunetti gets posted, he is trashed and defended. And sometimes he's on those message boards himself, defending himself and calling people out. And he's had a somewhat controversial 2016 though quite quiet and into 2017 which we will let him talk about or not. He is also a believer and he always has been about a certain kind of movie. He actively wants to make mid-budget non-tentpole movies for adults. And as we know this is an increasingly difficult thing to achieve now theatrically, theatrically, theatrically. He has recently stepped out of the drama that is Relativity Media and is now on his own as an independent producer. Uh, my first question before I want to get in what happened uh, at Cannes uh, with Netflix is, why would Vanity Fair call you Hollywood's most openly disliked executive? I mean, what have you done to deserve that title? And are you also secretly beloved?
3: Well, it's Hollywood for one. So I think anybody that has any success, people don't like. That's just the nature of our yes. business. Um but I, I think I'm so I, I'm definitely openly disliked because as as you know I don't I, I call it like I see it and that doesn't really rub a lot of people uh the right way in this town of, of a lot of ass kissing, which I try not to do. I mean sometimes you have to, but I try as much as possible to to not do that. Um and I also I'm not I'm not ashamed to um flaunt my success or to flaunt my talents or flaunt my abilities and uh in a town that tries to act humble that's really not humble i'm just blatant about it in a lot of ways and and in reality i think i'm a lot more humble than many would be particularly in in my position as far as being secretly um beloved i don't think that that's necessarily a secret because i i've brought a lot of a lot of profit a lot of material and a lot of uh a lot of opportunities to a lot of people beyond just myself, everyone from studios to other producers to talent from directors to actors to writers. So I would like to think that I'm beloved for the same reasons that people dislike me.
2: As someone who has made a certain kind of movie and from the gambling drama 21 to the social network to Captain Phillips to 50 Shades of Grey, sophisticated mid-range movies made for adults, what are you seeing playing out in the theatrical market for those kinds of American movies? I mean, is there a future for them or is it over? I mean, I've been thinking a lot about this for the last five or six years. Uh, The notion that movies had a period where they played in giant movie palaces and we waited in line to see them and we watched them on giant screens and we awarded them and they had a huge cultural import uh, for mm, about 90 years and then that's over. And that's okay. You know, I'm getting used to that idea and resigning myself to the fact that there are many, many old movies I haven't seen yet. And that seems to be taking up by far the bulk of my movie-watching experience these days. At Cannes this past week, there was a debate that opened up at the film festival, and that debate revolved around the theatrical experience of a movie or the idea that you can watch it on TV, on your phone, whenever you want. And the French, as I'm sure you know, are maybe the most intense cinephiles in the world, and the theatrical experience for them is like going to a church or a museum. Two movies produced by Netflix, both by pretty good directors, Noah Baumbach and Bong Joon-ho were included in competition, not simply premiering at Cannes, but in actual competition, even though these two movies were not going to have a theatrical release. Uh, French theater owners protested, and the festival organizers backtracked and said any movie not released theatrically in France would not be allowed in competition at future festivals. Now, this opened up the main debate for the duration of the festival, with everyone chiming in from uh, Ted Sarandos to Alejandro Inarritu defending Netflix, to to Pedro Amavadar, who was the head of the jury, saying that the size of a film should not be smaller than the chair you're sitting on. Will Smith, who was one of the jurors, did not agree with uh, Pedro and said, Netflix has had no effect on what my kids go to the movie theater to watch and that Netflix has broadened his children's global cinematic comprehension. And of course, Will Smith has a deal with Netflix. So, you know, he, of course he'd say that. But Jun Ho said he didn't mind if people saw his film on a big screen or a small screen But more people than not were siding with Amal at Cannes and argued that Cannes competition should be about theatrical titles only. And final note, Netflix plans to make, I think, 50 films this year. So the debate is about digital disruption and the industry's relationship to Silicon Valley, the fate of the theatrical experience, and what kind of screen content deserves to be included in a film festival or an awards ceremony. Dana, this is an existential fight in a way. You know, it's essentially holding on to a past and cherishing a reverence for a narrative that is ending. The future is the disruptors and the disruptors versus the establishment and the traditionalists. I mean, does that sound familiar to anybody right now? <laughs> what do you think about this?
3: Well, I, th- I think, as you know and many know, I'm a huge proponent for the demise of theaters. To an extent, I think the, the- theatrical experience will never go away. Um, it's something that it's it's a it's a date night. It's a, it's a you know it's a good time out. It's going out in the summer for air conditioning. It's a, a variety of reasons to go out and do something and enjoy something, particularly like a. a big movie like studios are making now as something you want to see on a big screen with the crazy sound. But as technology advances both from what people can have in their their home theaters from a large 4k television for very little money and surround sound and everything can be streamed right to you i think our business is cannibalizing itself in a, in a lot of ways um and one of the and there's a lot of different tangents i can go off on this but i'll try to keep it more focused on just me personally a lot of the types of movies that i've done some that you've mentioned, like Social Network or Captain Phillips or 21, those movies I would not be able to get made today in the traditional studio sense. Um, but with places like Netflix and and all the others that will come, and that's the big thing. This is like when Steve Jobs holds up that iPhone 10 years ago and everyone went, holy shit, he touched the screen and it moves. That's where we're at now. Now every phone has a screen that if, you, don't, if you, you touch and it doesn't move, there's something wrong with it. So we're only in the infancy of where this is going to go and netflix was the first and amazon and hulu and there's going to be many many more that are going to come so what that does though for a creator like myself it gives me a lot more places to get the type of material that i'm known for making made with the way the studios are now with their tentpole movies that's the only thing that that we can really get made is ip and if you don't control a big piece of ip you're kind of you're kind of stuck and you're slipping one through the net when no one's looking to get something that that I like to make to to get that made. Um I don't go see the big blockbuster movies generally. That's just not nothing against them and it's great that they do well for the business because the better the business do the the, the better chance I have of get my other films made. Um so Things like uh, uh streaming services and Netflix and hulus and amazons of the world they're they're going to be the future of our business It's the same as like when pete when when everything started going digital shooting when a lot of filmmakers are like I will never shoot digital. I would only ever shoot film until they start to realize the advantages of it. Yes. And then everybody starts going to – and as the technology progressed and got better, everyone started going to digital. The same thing is going to start to happen uh, even more so than it is is now, and you're going to see more and more going that way, not only because of the technology and the abilities and, and, and opportunities it gives to the creators – but also to what it gives to the business. But also, like, I have a four-year-old daughter. That's, I mean, she works an iPad better than anything. That's the only thing she knows is where she watches her her content. Um, She goes to the theater to see, you know, Cinderella or whatever the new animation movie is. But she's still not really, you know, into it as much as she would be just sitting there watching her iPad. That's how she knows it. But the bigger issue that I've faced and that that I have with the the theater experience is – it's just not a good experience anymore. You go and there's somebody on their cell phone in front of you, or you you, you know there's somebody talking, or there's people going in and out. We also we live in this uh, you know DVR society now, and basically that's that's what it is. So it's you know if you want to take a piss, you can't when you're at the theater because you're afraid you're going to miss a pivotal plot point. Although a lot of the films that are in theaters now don't have p- pivotal plot <laughs> points that you couldn't put back together if you've gone for five minutes, but. Having it at home, you know, you can pause it and get up, grab a beer if you want, you know, have some friends over. Start it at seven oh six, as opposed to paying twenty dollars for parking and fifteen dollars for popcorn and you know, you know the the night out that it costs. Where this is an issue, I think that studios are starting to realize now. Then I've, I've said this and I've gotten in trouble for saying this, but if I had the ability, I would charge theaters for my content. Right now mm. it's the other way around. They take 50 percent right. of the box and they take all the concessions. Right. I would make them pay me to screen my movies and I would take 50 percent of their concessions. Yeah. Because, without my content they 're not selling, selling those concessions for you know twenty dollar popcorn or however much they 're charging for that, and with that, and, and they 're not in business without that right now, they have a stranglehold on on our business, and so they dictate and they require you know certain uh, things for releases and you know, they, have a, they have too much of a hold on our business, particularly the day and date releasing and day and date releasing is money that 's being left on the table right now by the studios and, and for our business. I hardly ever go to theaters right now, but a, because I have a four-year-old daughter and I have to get a babysitter and everything I said before about you know finding parking and paying for parking and paying for the concessions and you know mm-hmm. ev- and having to be there at a certain time and you know you drink that big ass thing of soda and then you got to piss after the first act and you right. can't and you sit there and your bladder's about to burst and it's just <laughs> not a fun experience. Right. But if I could stay at home. My sixty-inch four K television, surround sound, and it used to be like, ooh, you know, high society. Now that's not a big deal. That's you know, in a lot of people's homes, yeah. or you know, a, a decent uh, uh, system. And I could start it when I wanted to start it, pause it when I wanted to pause it. Have a few friends over. I'd pay a premium for that. Mm-hmm. I'd pay sixty, seventy, eighty, ninety dollars, depending. And I think the market should determine what that that cost is. So if if there's a demand for it, let it go as high as it can go. If there's not, let it drop down because right now that's that's money that's being left on the table that the studios aren't getting from me and many, many others.
2: So I assume, like me, there are no movies recently that have blown you away. Um, Mm -hmm. Or is being blown away uh, by a movie a kind of outdated American narrative and only applies to people of a certain demo? Because when I hear you say that about controlling the film, I wonder what's lost by that. Because I used to think that part of the power of going to a theater was that you can't control the film it controls you. It starts when it wants to. It's not going to stop for you. It's on a vast screen that dwarfs you. And you kind of have to give yourself over to it. In in many ways, it's a very passive experience. And so you let this thing wash over you, giving up that control in a way and falling into the movie. Whereas when you are stopping the film or you're watching your bedroom, and I've noticed that I've gotten used to this now. It's the only way to see a lot of movies that I want to see, of course. But I noticed that does that minimize the power of What I'm watching
3: to a point, I think I think you're right. However, I always say that if I'm not doing that, that's how I know the movie's good. Yes. If a movie can, I used to when I it used to be when I went to the theater. And I sat down and watched a movie, and if i wasn't thinking about how did they get that location, or I wonder how much they paid that actor or I right. wonder how they right. did this I was, if i wasn't thinking that that's how I knew it was a good movie. that was like the litmus test for me where I just got lost in the film right now it 's the same for me if i'm just sitting there and just not worrying about anything but sucked into it and unfortunately, I think it, it says something more about the quality of our films as opposed to, to as, a, as opposed to anything of, of our attention span or us being having that control yes, I think if, if the material is good, I'm going all the way through it. And where I, I really notice it now is television. Mm-hmm. And there is so much good television. When I sit down, it's like when I used to go into the theater to sit down for theater. You're sitting in. You're going for the ride. It's like everyone's set. everyone right. ready to go. Here we go. That's what I do with television now. Mm-hmm. And it's like, all right, you're done with your Twitter. You're done with the Instagram. Yeah. Everyone done, put your phones down. And we start and we go. And yeah. it doesn't get interrupted movies it's like okay it's going to be two hours let's see how good it is and then like you know half hour, 45 minutes in who needs to take a piss and pause and...
2: Yeah, but but it's also, I mean, I do think that that brief moment of whatever was called the golden age of television is over. It's just the age of television now, with thousands, it seems, of scripted shows, a Mm -hmm. sea of content that we seem to be drowning in. I talk with people every week about shows I've never heard of, (laughs) that they love, and they said that I've got to watch. And I don't know if it's an age thing either, because my boyfriend, who is... 30 years old, um, didn't go to movies for the reason that I went to them. I mean, I was in the 70s, so we got The Deer Hunter, we mm-hmm. got Apocalypse Now, mm-hmm. we got Taxi Driver, We great films that you would want to go to a theater to see. But he grew up in a different time. And so as a kid and a teenager, he went to have fun, be entertained, see whatever was popular, let's see the number one movie. And, you know, he was a liter- literature major at Iowa, um, and he's appreciated the movie uh, education that I gave him, you know, showing him and The the Godfather and The Last Picture Show and, you know, Barry Lyndon and various De Palma movies. But, um, He's just not that interested in new movies, and he sees video games like the latest Final Fantasy that he's been playing as the new movie. That is his new movie, and he made that vow a couple of years ago after staggering out of a Marvel movie that he is done with new movies. He doesn't want to see these anymore. He's done with them, but I I was going to ask you what American movies have you really liked lately, and I realize I don't have an answer to that. You must not have an answer to that
3: I, I mean to something that really stands out and and is like you have to see this movie no. Yeah,
2: no, not at all. Um, I do see,
3: well. I can't. Even, I don't even
2: know if I can say that fully about the foreign movies that finally get released here, and or you know certain documentaries. I mean, it's really gone to the point where narrative American movie making has hit an all all time low. But I'm curious, what TV shows are you watching regularly, um, or, or do you try to keep up, and how do yeah. you find out what you want to see?
3: I watch a lot of uh, HGTV and DIY television, which drives my girlfriend crazy. (laughs) 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 But that aside, that really does take up a lot of my time. Um, It's hard for me to keep up with a lot of them. Like what you said, people are like, "You have to watch this because a lot of times i i 'll start watching them and just i don 't see it and no, i, I can 't get into it i can 't get on the ride but there's some pleasant surprises um I actually I started watching Game of Thrones because there was nothing else on when Game of Thrones first started, mm-hmm. and I was never into medi- medieval or fantasy yeah. kind of stuff like that, and it it sucked me in right. and and i'm now i 'm now into it i can 't keep up with it for for anything, but I just learned to like the, the, the characters that I like follow their storylines, and the others kind of, you know, it all starts to, to work and blend together. Um, I love Breaking Bad. I'm watching Better Call Saul now. I like what they're doing with that and how the, the, uh, the prequel to that and you're starting to see the characters come in and that and, and seeing where that's going to go. Is Walter White going to come back to you, Tim? Scott, he has to. Interesting. He has to. Cause I mean, the, the way, the whole thing that they're doing, it's, you're seeing where all these characters, mm-hmm. where they originate from and where, where they're going. And that, that's, that's a lot of fun. And it's, um, but also being in the business, part of my problem, because I'm looking too far ahead of where this is going to go and how they're going to connect this and how are they going to do this. And so I'm watching that big little lies. I ruined it for me and my girlfriend. the First episode, I called the the twist at the end, the first freaking episode. But then I kept saying all the way through. I'm like, there is no way that that's what it is. There is <laughs> no way. It's got to be something <laughs> so much better. It's got to be something And all the way through. And I kept pointing to it. And I'm like, shit. That's where they're going with it. That's where they're going with it. And at the end, when they reveal, my girlfriend turned to me when she went, "Son of a bitch!" She's like, "I can't <laughs> believe you called that in first episode." She's like, "You ruined it." I'm like, "Well, you really didn't know, so it wasn't really ruined." Um, but yeah, so I like. It's hard for me to 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 get into um, to a lot of shows. Uh, just I, I, you know, I like a lot of the. Um, a lot of netflix shows i like amc does some really good stuff but like walking dead i fell off of that after season three um it's it's hard for me to stay in like some of the greatest television I think was Sopranos and the Wire, or some of the some of the best TV ever, I think. Well, I certainly
2: agree, and I think that those shows are not being made. I don't see them being mm-hmm. made in, in today's landscape. And I think part of the thing that bothers me to a degree about this overpraising of television is that it's really only about storytelling. The showrunner is the auteur, not the director. The director's a hired hand. Yep. It's really all about writing, writing, writing. And I see this kind of writer roomy kind of structure and things going on in a lot of TV shows that kind of drive me crazy. I think Big Little Lies, one of the things that struck me about that is that it was a tourist in a way. John Mark Feli directed all eight hours. It had a consistent look and feel to it mm-hmm. that was unusual from anything else. And he was using the camera in a way that he had used the camera in his previous features. So it was different from what you mostly see in television, maybe because of TV ec- past TV economics, where the camera was really never allowed to become a character. You didn't have enough time to get mood and atmosphere, or money, quite mm-hmm. honestly, to compete with even okay movies looking great. Mm-hmm. That's changing, I think. I think that whole attitude in terms of the camera, the director using the camera and television is definitely coming into play. And that was one of the things that I noticed about Big Little Lies, even though I kind of thought by the end,
3: it's funny because I said the same thing. I'm like, it's shot really well. It's lit really well. Um, But I think it was just pretty generic television when you when you strip that away.
2: In the L.A. Times this past week, there was an op-ed whose headline was, Don't Worry Hollywood, China's Not a Threat. The country's film industry is not successful artistically or financially. Uh, this was written by John Pomfret. And he writes that Chinese investment has flooded into the industry in recent years. AMC, the world's largest network of theaters, is owned by the Wanda Group, which also purchased legendary pictures. Sixteen members of Congress signed a letter wary of a ramification of a Chinese assault in Hollywood. The writer goes on, it has been 20 years since Hollywood made a movie in which Chinese authorities or China itself was painted in a somewhat negative light. Most recently, China saved an American astronaut in in Ridley Scott's The Martian. China saved the planet in Arrival and in Transformers Age of Extinction. And in both movies, Paramount portrayed Chinese officials as more competent than their American counterparts. Hollywood's craven currying of Chinese favor in exchange of its vast market rivals only that of Mark Zuckerberg's ploys to get Facebook unblocked in China. Pomfret continues, it's important to remember two things. China's film industry remains abysmal artistically, and it has begun to flail financially. In 2016, China's much-vaunted filmmaking industry churned out a thousand movies, clearly a case of quantity over quality, and on average these movies made about two million apiece compared to the 70 million the average American movie made there. Every Chinese film company is facing financial difficulties, and its box office revenue is stagnant, and let's not even talk about Matt Damon and the movie The Great Wall, a monster extravaganza co-production of Universal and the China Film Group, among others, that is going to lose around $75 million because it is assumed to be so bad. And Pomfret sums it up by saying that Chinese movies will continue to stink artistically as long as the government keeps its hands in the business of making movies, and that the problem with China is that They can't make the blockbuster movies Americans make because of Chinese censorship issues. So certain narratives are simply not acceptable, whether it's Iron Man, The Hunger Games, Gravity, the Fast and the Furious movies, The Lord of the Rings... As an added note, I know filmmakers who have been trying to work with the Chinese, and they say it is all madness and lies. Was this initial fear of China justified? And what role is China going to be playing in the global film market in 2017 and beyond?
3: China's a a difficult one to figure out because that's what everybody's been looking towards for at least the last few years um, for a variety of reasons. A, for the amount of money that they're putting into Hollywood. Some of it's been real. Some of it hasn't been. I've heard more stories that the money really wasn't real. And I know it's, it's harder for them to get it out of China now to actually put it into uh, U.S. entities and productions. Um, the other is the their population, the amount of audience that's there. And so those are two things that you know everybody in, in our business wants. They want butts and seats and they want money to make their films. And China uh, seems to have that. But that that op-ed is is right about the censors. It becomes a problem as to what you um, what you can and can't do. It seems so random at times. Doesn't yeah, it? it's a, well. There's also there's like I think there's like twenty slots they have a year that you can the foreign or U.S. movies that can fall into those, and they have to pass the censors. But you're right about it being very random. I actually made a um, Chinese movie made for China. It wasn't very good. Um, released for our standards and i don't know how well it did in china but it was before this whole um you know chinese wave happened here but i sort of saw saw it coming and what was brewing and and um i got kevin it was uh it was called uh, inseparable and it was basically kevin played this superhero that was a figment of this guy's uh, uh, imagination Daniel Wu and uh, so he he was like the this, this superhero that didn't really exist but was running around with him solving crimes and fighting crime around um, we were in Gonjow or Gon, Joe or however you say it mm-hmm. um, but we were there like I don't know, maybe seven years ago, and the reason that I wanted to do it, and it was a very low budget film, but was to introduce Kevin into China, right, um, and to get him known there more so than than he was. That movie didn't do it, but House of Cards did, right. and so that, we were we didn't accomplish it with that, but we ultimately accomplished it with House of Cards. But I saw that there's definitely something there, and it was weird though because that movie. It had some some stuff that was like critical of, of Chinese government mm-hmm. and and things that normally wouldn't fly, but it was passed through and we were able we were able to uh, to do it. Um, but it, it's I just spent a lot of time in, in uh, Hong Kong. I was there for about a week, meeting with a lot of different um, communication companies and networks and things and investors there, and. I couldn't figure it out myself. I don't know what they're looking for. Some say that they want just straight down the middle American movies that they want to get the distribution to because the films made to to be a part of China like Matt Damon's film don't work. Um, Others want have some aspect of China involved in them before they they want to get involved or finance them or or distribute them. So it's sort of all over the map. And and from my experience, they haven't really figured out, or at least there's not one set way to do it. It's, it's depending on who you're talking to from one day to the next.
2: In very, very stark terms, what makes a good producer compared to what makes a bad producer? What is the one difference between the two? Or what are the many differences between the two? Yeah,
3: just like describing what a producer does um it varies project to project i've always said that a good producer is involved as much and as little as they need to be a lot of times i'll see producers that will come in and think that they need to stick their fingers in every pie that's involved if the script comes in and the writer has a great handle on it and they only need you know x amount of notes great but somebody doesn't need to weigh in just to weigh in so they're feel like they've been a part of it and start, you know, going down another path or you know once a movie's in production I always say that my job as a producer if I've done everything as I'm supposed to then there's really not much for me to do when the movie's in production right. um, but I've seen producers they'll go around and they'll meddle in the costume department, the makeup department, the hair department, they'll just meddle in everything and again I think it's either for their own insecurity or their own justification that they're actually doing something um and uh, they, But going even further back, I think a good producer can identify talent both in material and either director, writer, actor um, and know what works that can be adapted to the screen or either it be a, a book that's being ad- adapted, a newspaper article, an idea or a finished script. And will this attract talent? will it attract the ability to be made being now financing or if you can get into a studio and will it entertain an audience and keep them captivated and and make them want to come and pay 20 bucks and tell other people to come and pay 20 bucks to see it my test of how i do that is would i sit in a theater for two hours and watch this and if my answer after i read a script is yes then that's something that i want to go for it starts with all right if i'm flipping through and i'm not setting a script down and it keeps my attention from there and then at the end um because i can flip through a lot of scripts and they'll keep my interest but then at the end i might be like yeah it's i kept my interest but i don't want to sit in the theater and pay 20 bucks and go through everything that there is to do that um but if at the end that answer is yes then that's something that i genuinely pursue
1: Like a sailor at sea, beautiful loser, where you gonna fall when you realize you just can't have it. Roger, a perfect, guess. beautiful loser. Read it on the wall and realize just can't have it all. You just can't have it all. You just
2: can't have it all. So you grew up in Covington, Virginia, which is a paper mill town and quote-unquote dirt poor in the 70s and 80s before you joined the Coast Guard, is that correct? That's correct. Uh, that was in 1992, I guess you joined, no? Correct. What was your childhood as well as your teenage years in Virginia like?
3: <laughs> um, well, <laughs> every time I've said something about it or something's been written about it, I thanks to Facebook and Twitter, I, I get people from that I've never even heard of or know <laughs> that contact me, <clears throat> um, but uh, surprisingly, a lot of them are in agreement with me, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so there's that. Uh it's it's a small paper mill town. My father was a postman. He grew up in New Jersey, and my brothers and sisters were born in uh, New Jersey. And my father was a bit of a hippie. Decided he wanted to. Uh, imp- I'll probably get in trouble for saying that. Um, <laughs>
2: so what? <laughs> I know exactly, right? <laughs> Big deal. Um,
3: they they he it was like this going back to land kind of movement. And he transferred to this small town, and he bought sixty acres of land. He built a log cabin himself. Um, I remember that as a kid. And, and I was the only child born in Virginia. Um, and I remember him cursing like hell as he was building that log cabin. And it was, you know, to me, if you growing up seeing that's no big deal. Now I think back, it's like, holy shit, my dad mm. actually built a log cabin that we lived in. Um, and it was a small paper mill town. And, you know, it was pulpwood cutters and a lot of rednecks and not really much going on. And part of the reason joining the Coast Guard was it was a way out.
2: Were you a big movie watcher as a kid? Did you like movies? I know you liked Star Wars, but overall... Uh,
3: That's uh, my fandom of star wars or my like of star wars is a little over exaggerated and it's because of the movie fanboys that i did
2: that's right you made that movie fanboys which is a kind of
3: uh, yeah it's a little bit of a cult yeah. film but it also turned into this huge battle with me and harvey weinstein that was pretty well documented um and it was just a bit of a nightmare all the way around the production it ultimately got released the movie is it's good for what it is and and you know for the constraints that we were put under however I then became labeled as this die-hard Star Wars fan. I like, style, uh, I, I like Star Wars and it's a fan of all of them, but not as die-hard as people make me out to be. And it's a lot because I have a Stormtrooper in my office and at my house that, <laughs> that were props from the movie. Um, and I had a lot of props from the movie that people saw and they just, it, it just snowballed into something. But back to your original question, where I grew up, there was the Visualite Theater, with one screen. And it was usually films that were two three months old um if you want to see the newer releases you had to drive to roanoke it was a hour hour and a half drive at the time um and so going to Rono to see a movie that was like that was a big night because you're leaving early it's still daylight as you're driving through the mountains to get there and you know it was an event it was like you know what i was saying earlier um and that's where you could see the the um the newer releases and that's also was a different era of film. So I loved going to the theater then. And that was and the movies were just, you know, I mean, the, I remember going with my dad, seeing the toy with mm-hmm. Richard Pryor yep. and coming out of that and make my dad open the back door for me to get in. Cause I was like that <laughs> little rich kid. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like, yeah, you know, I lived the movies and the movies were, you know, they, they, it was a, a, a way to escape. And, uh, but it was very difficult to see a lot of films, uh, both, a I couldn't afford it, but B there was a limited um, number and a limited access to, to see you know uh, releases. So you could see maybe one a week, but they would keep it for a while, and you know it would play for you know a couple of weeks there, and before another movie came in, so it was not not as easy to see films.
2: So after the military, you're in New York. Did you briefly, briefly attend New York University
3: for? Um, a very short period of time right. for about six weeks. Although they claim me as part of their alumni, you, which I'll take.
2: Okay. <laughs> and did you think at one point that you wanted to be a filmmaker or a writer?
3: I really didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, I I tried to write. I sucked at it and uh, just kind of gave up. I would, I would always write a lot of notes and ideas and start outlining different things, but never really pursued it to complete anything. Um, and then I dabbled in filmmaking a little bit, thinking maybe that's what I wanted to do. And while doing all that, I realized producing was something that I really liked. Never pursuing producing. Um, It wasn't until after I launched uh, a website that uh, Kevin and I created called TriggerStreet.com. It was for aspiring filmmakers and screenwriters. That stuff really started getting submitted to us that way that – once I was up and going and running, I there was a, a documentary that needed some finishing funds and some help to complete it that I got involved in. And that ended up being the first thing that I uh, was involved in as a producer. And that's when I really started to get my feet wet. And it wasn't until 21 that, uh, that I realized that's when I wanted to be a producer, when I found the article that was ultimately to the book. And yeah. it ended up taking six years to get it made, but that was the first thing that I grabbed to – start to work on as a producer. I produced a couple smaller films, including the one with Alec Baldwin, uh, Minnie's first time. That was actually the first film I ever produced.
2: Well, to get back to the origin story, uh, there's either two versions. There's one, while you're uh, working at a startup digital wireless network company, you know, Mm -hmm. the early 90s, you randomly meet Kevin Spacey at a dinner party and he hires you as his assistant. What dinner party were you at when you randomly meet Kevin Spacey? Or as some people online question, did you just sell him a phone and that's how
3: you met him? It's a combination of that, actually. So I was working at a, a wireless startup called um, OmniPoint, and this is when everything was first going digital. Analog phones were still, you know, you had to hit in pin numbers and there was no caller ID or anything like, you know, all the features that we have now. So it was this little random which ultimately the network ended up becoming T-Mobile. It was bought out by VoiceStream and then VoiceStream became T-Mobile um, that, that we built in the Northeast and Miami and a few other pockets. Um, and there was a, a guy that worked around the corner who was interested in the stock. And so he would always come around and talk to me about what we were doing and what we were up to. And it turned out he was friends with Kevin. I didn't really know who Kevin was at the time and he mentioned him to me a couple times and then he said, well, he's coming to this dinner that we're having. It was at uh, Blue Ribbon Sushi in New Mm -hmm. York. So we went to this dinner and it wasn't a dinner party. It was just dinner was yeah. four or five of us there um and that's where we originally met and then he was in new york for a while um it was right after he did la confidential and uh uh midnight in the garden good and evil and then uh we were just friends hanging out going to different clubs and you know as groups in new york do mm-hmm. and then um i don't know it was maybe a month later he was going to london or planning to go to london to do the uh, iceman Cometh*. Mm-hmm and he'd asked me which i thought jokingly asked me to go to london to be his to to go with him london be his assistant and initially i said you know no fucking way i'm I'm not going to be your assistant and i had an assistant working for me at the time and the company that i that was at was doing really well but then the more i started to think about it i don't i've been to london once when i was in the military and i really liked it and never really traveled anywhere else other you know being from the mountains of virginia and I just started thinking, like how hard can it be it's go get coffee for him, get coffee for myself, take my dry cleaning, i take his dry cleaning and it was It was supposed to be a, a three month gig, and I asked for a leave of absence. The job said no uh, because at the time there was sprint pcs was launching there was still it was 9x mobile was merging with bell atlantic mobile um at&t was building out their first digital network so we were right in the thick of it and they needed everybody that needed so they said they said no and i said okay initially and then i was sitting in my we had this soho loft that was our office um at the on broadway at the end of bond street and um we had a this awesome loft that turned into cubicles and uh it was one one night late at night well late for for working at 8 30 i popped up out of my uh, uh cubicle prairie dogged up out of it and saw my boss at the time i won't say his name but he was 40 years old and he was back in the back corner and he used to commute in every day from new jersey and he was stressing you know there were numbers and things he had to hit and i just remember going I don't want to be that guy when I'm 40 years old. Right. And I called Kevin. I go, hey, can I – do you still need somebody to uh, be your assistant in London? And he said, yeah, but I thought you weren't going to do it. And I'm like – and I'm in. He goes, well, it's only three months. So my plan was I had a six-month non-compete. I would go to London for three months. I would come back. If they didn't give me my job, I'd go work for the competition And you know, after I bummed around for three months. And then uh, – Three months ended up turning into a year. That's when he discovered the old Vic. We started at the Almeida right. Theater. Um, Howard Davies directed in the Iceman Cometh was my first introduction to theater. I'd never gone to broadway or seen any live theater and i started from right in the rehearsal hall that they had down the street in islington from the Almeida theater watching all these great shakespearean actors from t- tim piggott smith i mean like amazing, yeah, amazing great yeah. actors that you just end up becoming friends with and i really didn't even know who he was you know or any of them howard davies any of them and that was kind of like my introduction into hollywood really and entertainment was not through hollywood but through british theater
2: Well, at one point you become the president of Trigger Street Production Spacey's production company, and your first producing credit is that movie, that satiric neo-noir called Minnie's First Time, uh, which is released in 2016 and starring Nikki Reed and Alec Baldwin, and it's a movie that recently caused controversy because of Alec Baldwin's new memoir, which just came out, and in the movie Minnie's First Time, Baldwin's character has a sexual relationship with his stepdaughter, and the two of them plan to murder her mother, and Nikki Reed was 16 at the time of shooting, and Alec accuses you of misrepresenting the age of Nikki Reed when they shot the film and Baldwin says that he had no idea that she was 16 when he shot their scenes together Baldwin says he wasn't aware that Nikki Reed was underage until the end of the film and that he flipped out because the producers you told him something different and he implied that you were shady and unethical and you tweeted that Alec Baldwin lied and knew Nikki Reed was 16 you called him a fool and he called you a Hollywood idiot and a zombie and he threatened you you called him a douche this is all on Twitter by the way You can read this all on twitter but how did this controversy that happened a few weeks ago ultimately resolve itself and what do you think of alec baldwin in general
3: (laughs) when this whole thing was kicking off i was just like oh jesus here we go um but somebody had sent it to me the excerpt from the book and normally i would just be like yeah whatever he's you know fucking lying i don't care and if he would have just said i didn't know and he actually said he didn't know Nikki was sick, was, was 17 In reality she was 16 um if he would have just said I didn't know that she was uh 16 until the ending of filming I would have let it go and it wouldn't have yep. been like whatever he's a liar fuck him um but he uh when he the w- the added part to it of that he then flipped out on the producers and basically made it look like I had done something shady that's why I, I, I'm like I got I gotta call him out on it and I just basically put down factually of the reality of it and he and I actually share an agent and um, and at the time I, we, I didn't have the same agent at the time but he was at CAA there was three girls shortlisted one of them was at CAA the one was Nikki Reed mm-hmm. Nick Gouda was the director our financiers at the time were where well, there was one that was involved that was a little questionable <laughs> Mm -hmm. (laughs) We'll leave it at that. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was a concern about the nudity and the sensitivity of the subject because it's a stepfather having an affair or or a father having an affair with his stepdaughter. Um, So there was the worry that they might make it a little too um, too much. They would want nudity or too much nudity or too much. And and part of the conversation was, well, if we have Nikki, she's 16, she's underage, so she can't be nude. And Alec picked her. He knew the issues that we were facing with the others. Um, he had the same agent, agency as uh, Jim Toth was her, her rep at the time. at Del Piano was uh, uh, Alec's rep. And she had just come off the movie 13, which was very well known at the time that it was based on her and her yeah. th- her life. Now, granted, it takes time for movies to come out and be released and – you know that whole thing, and Alex said, "Well, I have to be an idiot to think that or that I must be an idiot to think that someone would know somebody's age based on the title of a film," which, and I would normally agree with, but at the time that was a very that's what she was known for, and it was written, you know, a lot about it being based off of her life. And when I actually for the first time I met with her, she was fifteen when I met with her for for this. Um, so I. Put it all out on Twitter, and then he came on to uh, respond to Tatiana Siegel. And I I had um, tweeted his – I tweeted at Alec Baldwin as mm-hmm. opposed to Alec Baldwin Foundation, so he wasn't seeing everything that I right. was saying. So <laughs> uh, Tatiana Siegel, she uh, she posted an article that she had did, and Alec responded to that and said, yeah, because a producer like Brunetti would never do anything shady or unethical. Right, And – I, I was sitting at so House uh, so of all the cliche places mm-hmm. to be, and uh, <laughs> I was there, and I saw, it and it popped up, and I was in a meeting with somebody from the mayor's office, and I literally was just like, um, "I'm sorry, I got to deal with something right now." <laughs> so I got up, went outside, and I called, uh, I called our mutual agent, and told him, "I go look." you you need to get control of him because you know me and you know him and it's going to get ugly really fast and he was like i'm staying out of it i'm not getting the middle of it i'm like well unfortunately you are in the middle of it because you represent both of us so i'm giving you the opportunity now to stop this because i'm going at him and then it was off to the races and yeah we we exchanged uh quite a few barbs as to what i think of alec i think alec's a fantastic actor I still stand behind everything that I tweeted. I think he is a blowhard. I think that he gets a bit delusional on you know who he is. Um, but that said, you know he's kind of like guys that I face in the military and 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 a lot that I face in his business. Um, that they're used to screaming and yelling and and people cowering down to them and then then just you know walking over whoever they're going to walk over. And I dealt with it a lot in in the military, and what I realized then was you've got to just punch those guys in the nose. Otherwise, they're just going to keep doing it to you. Not literally punch them in the nose, but just stand up to them and don't let them steamroll you. And I've always done it. I will always do that. And if I know somebody's in the wrong, I'm I'm going to go back at them.
2: Because of your relationship with Ben Mizrige, um who wrote the book uh, 21 is Based On, and 21 was really your first big hit. It made about $160 million theatrically worldwide. Uh, you team up with him for an adaptation of his next book, The Accidental Billionaires, which tells the story of the founding of Facebook. Um, you ultimately, through a kind of drama, uh, the movie's produced by with you with uh, Scott Rudin. Aaron Sorkin uh, comes in to write uh, the screenplay. Um, ultimately, David Fincher came Into direct, and the social network comes together very quickly, becomes a big hit, strikes a zeitgeist nerve, is nominated for eight Oscars, and it seems that it's probably going to win picture and director until a movie called The King's Speech is released and kind of blindsides the social network's chances. And Tom Hooper beats out David Fincher for best director, and The King's Speech wins best picture and best actor, beating out Jesse Eisenberg, who plays Zuckerberg. Now, my feeling about the social network is that the movie is immaculately well-made, maybe one of the last great studio movies of that era. Um, but is The Social Network an anti-millennial, anti-Facebook movie made by boomers and aging Gen Xers? Do Fincher and Sorkin and Rudin have any feeling whatsoever for the possibilities of social media? Uh, all of them had admitted at the time they have no social media presence, were never on Facebook, and is his portrayal of Zuckerberg just Sorkin's fantasy? I'm asking you this because I can't imagine you, Dana, having such a dour feeling about the possibilities of social media and the ominousness and the menace of this particular movie, which works dramatically, no doubt. Um, and you have a different relationship with social media than the key creatives did oh, yeah. in making that movie and i do feel um, when i watch it that divide there's a tension there about that um zuckerberg um and i don't think that you would nef- definitely you were definitely thinking of making such a kind of negative movie in some respects. Zuckerberg, of course, has said that the movie is an inaccurate portrayal and the idea of Facebook being created because he was rejected by a bitchy girl is simply not true. In the movie, this is the rosebud that we see at the end with, yes, the Beatles singing, Baby, You're a Rich Man, which does seem vaguely boomerish as well. He seems like a boomer's version of a millennial origin story. Um can you imagine the movie being looked at that way, and what is kind of flawed in that in that lens
3: um well th- there's a lot of different ways to see it, and th- when I talk to people about it, it depends like younger the younger generations they see it differently than older generations and and older generations see it even more differently um, The younger generations uh, i that I've spoken to they they love it. They they tell me at least ones I've talked to that it's it's inspired them to chase after a, an app that they were thinking about developing, or a site, or some idea that they were you know thinking of doing, and it, it pushed them to pursue it.
2: That's amazing. I mean, I you get that from the movie? But it's do, very interesting. But
3: that, it was two thousand and nine too, though.
2: Yes, that's true. So if you
3: go back and watch it now for the first time,
2: it, it's going to be a different. It's, a, it's yeah. a different
3: movie yeah. because it's it, it is what you're what you're saying and and then what I found most interesting about that movie from different perspectives because we you know we told it in the Rashomon style and every character did, like some people think that Eduardo got screwed over and. But then there's you know the line you're the business end of the company you you know you signed the document you knew you should know what you were doing. Some people think that Mark is is you know a horrible person. Um, personally, I think that he's a badass, and that if he didn't do what he did and how he did it, Facebook wouldn't be what it is today. Um, the Winklevoss, I thought personally that they were the worst portrayed in the movie, and personally I know them now. They love it, mm-hmm. and I like. Okay, great. So everyone has a different kind of takeaway. Where some people hate the the Winklevi, some people love the Winklevi. Some people hate Zuckerberg. Some people love Zuckerberg. Some people feel bad for Eduardo. Some people think he got you know what he what he should have gotten. Um, there's there's a lot of different ways of view that that film. But I th- I'd be interested to have somebody who hasn't seen it watch it now, yeah, yeah. who is active on social media, and see how they how they would perceive it. But when we were making the film, it was funny because part of I mean, there were so many interesting things in the making of that film. But I, I remember telling Sony, like, and it was the fastest from inception of screen of oh any God, film, film that so I did. so fast, yeah. But what I I told Sony, I go, look, we got to move on this because this could be the next MySpace. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and we need to do this while Facebook is still relevant. Right. Um, and so that definitely helped. Uh, propel things um, and then i remember the first poster that we got when we were doing the marketing um, looks on it and it said you don't get to 300 million friends without making a few enemies and then yeah. by the time we got to where that poster was coming out it was 500 million and it was it was just you know it was like a rocket taking off um, so from when we started that to what it ultimately was by the time it came out the company had completely changed and the website had completely changed. But the story's still there. And while Mark disputes a lot of that, I mean, he's a very wealthy guy. Mm-hmm. And there was a room full of attorneys to make sure that what we were doing, we were, uh, you know, we were legally mm-hmm. uh, uh, secure with. And so that yeah, – I'm not going to get in a pissing contest with Mark Zuckerberg of all people, but it's – There's there's reasons for every every bit of that, and I I thought we were pretty we we we're very good with him. And, and frankly, I think we, we made him look like a rock star.
2: So season five of House of Cards premieres today on Netflix, uh, though you'll be hearing this podcast at a later date. A show you also helped produce and the show that put Netflix on the map in 2013. And full disclosure, I got in three seasons and then time just flew and I missed season four. Uh, this season, the evil, unscrupulous Frank Underwood, played by Kevin Spacey, is still president. His wife, Robin Wright, is now the vice presidential nominee. And all of Frank sins are coming back to haunt him. There have been in the entertainment press a lot of concerns about HBO's Veep, which stars uh, Julia Louis-Dreyfus as the first female president, and now I see it in reviews of season five of House of Cards, essentially saying that the two most well-known TV shows about the political world for some reason suddenly can't compare to the quote-unquote madness and quote-unquote unending horror now occupying the White House. How can anything compete with the mad in the White House. Is this a self-fulfilling entertainment press prophecy? Oh, Trump is in the White House. This totally invalidates the comedy of Veep and the drama of House of Cards, even though the shows are simply what they are, I think, entertainments to be consumed. I mean, I never saw Veep or House of Cards as necessarily political or ideological shows. One is satirical, one is kind of a, a paranoid political drama, and based on a British TV series from many years ago. What do you think of this ideology and this reaction from some in the entertainment press?
3: I mean, where do you start? <laughs> um, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, we do – and so when we <sighs> – Hey look, I, you know, I don't give a shit and I say what I, what I feel and I think that the media, particularly the liberal media, um, is is the sky is falling every day. Yeah. And whatever the whatever the scandal was last week, they've already forgotten about and they're on to the new scandal this week. And you may not agree with Trump as a president and he may not be the best guy for the job, but I don't think any of our last probably Ten presidents, or any of our presidents, were ever the best guy for the yeah. job of all the people. The political and electoral process is just so back-ass backwards, mm, yes. and never going to have the best guy. But the fact of the matter is, it's who the people elected. I agree, and yeah. we're creating so much. I, I think people. Have watched House of Cards, and particularly the media have watched House of Cards, and they're now turning, you know, their narratives towards you know what some of our narratives are. are. However, so that's just my own, and I, I'll circle back to my own beliefs on that. But to to the um, what you were asking earlier, when we first started the show, we thought that maybe we were pushing it a little too far. Mm-hmm. Like maybe we're just you know because we want to keep it realistic you know somewhat believable and then we would go home and watch the news and be like all right maybe we're not pushing it far enough i think and that was when obama was president and what i think i've learned through this process is politics is politics and the narrative that's going to come from it is what the media is going to feed us no matter what is actually happening if you look at you know there's all everything about Melina Trump pushing Trump's hand away yes. two times. I mean, that's all you saw. On and on and on and on. It was like, uh, okay, we get it. And it's like they're they're just nitpicking and they're zeroing in, looking for something. If they focused on any of the good, I don't know if there is, or if they could find any of the good. I think it would be a different a, a, a different narrative um, completely. And while I'm not saying Trump is the right guy, I do disagree, and with. With the media and with particularly people in this business so that are just adamant, just like fucking pulling their hair out, going crazy, and I've had to remove people from Facebook because just like every oh, fucking day, it's yes. like. And what they don't realize that they're doing is they're eating their own, and they're they're. I'm liberal, but I have conservative views. Yeah,
2: I was saying the same.
3: But. Watching this is starting to push me the other way. Oh,
2: completely. It, it is too. Yeah. I'm feeling exactly the same way. I'm a gay liberal. Guy who lives in West Hollywood, yeah. and I feel like this whole movement has been so out of control, so unhinged, that it's absurd. Um, so yes, I,
3: I used to think I mean, the right wings were unhinged and, no. and like and so just I. like they're how could they be thinking that way? They're lunatics. Now it's like holy shit! It's the <laughs> now it's this yeah, side. They're absolute lunacy, and it's it's going to be interesting to see how people react to this season um, because it's it's particularly with you know how if anything maybe it's cathartic or it'll be like therapy for them and um we'll be uh beneficial to them in a way. <laughs> so.
2: Well, carrying on with this, I mean, you did, you attended the Producers Guild Awards this past February, and you walked out about an hour later, and you posted on Instagram, left an hour in when there had only been two awards presented by that point, and the politics were absurd. The Hollywood bubble needs to be popped. Now, I posted a podcast uh, in April where I talked exactly, where well, I just talked for 35 minutes. I did an extended monologue, trying to figure out and contextualize the Hollywood hysteria over Trump's victory. Victory. Where did it come from and what did it mean? I'd never seen anything like this. And Why was someone so affected? Why can't someone stop complaining about an elected president, about how everyone seemed to be reduced to this babbling idiot living in a self-made bubble? And are you really so broken by an election where the American voters made their decision? Blah, blah, blah. He won. Get over it. Man up. Start looking at 2020. Sure. Start looking at 2020 with cunning and vigilance. But just stop talking about impeachment and the Russians. It just makes people look silly and unhinged, I believe. You know, some people were, I think, secretly happy about that podcast. And then others I know were very, very pissed off. And I do believe I was definitely disinvited unofficially oh, sure. from a couple of dinners. And people made excuses about the dinner being moved or, or Kim's sick, she can't make it. And I thought, got it. Okay. I knew that was going to happen.
3: Um, but but see, that that is just that's so wrong because A, it's either it's supposed to be the party of tolerance. Of course, of course. And then, but if you don't and it's also, it's like, oh, you say what I say and I say what you say, so we must be right. Yes. And that's the problem with Hollywood and that's what I say about the Hollywood bubble needs to be popped is it's an echo chamber, and you, everyone's hearing and saying the same thing, so they just think that everybody must be right. If they don't look at what happened in November and wake up, it's going to happen again. Yeah, and yeah. all the media told us there's no way that Trump can win. The polls show that Hillary's got it, yeah. and. Look 350
2: electoral votes 350 electoral votes for yeah. him. he can't possibly get over 80
3: yeah I know. and so the same th- they're doing the same thing again and they're not paying attention to when you get on a plane you fly from here to new york and you look out the window that's who th- that's who's really voting that's that's what matters yes. and if we we live in our little bubbles of L.A. and New York and other metropolitan areas, you're only hearing that, but that's not that's not who elects presidents. Oh,
2: but those people now want the electoral college done. When I talked about this on this podcast, I was out with very wealthy, proud coastal elitists who said they should do away with electoral process and New York and L.A. should decide who's president. I actually that's had absurd, uh, yeah, it was absurd. But
3: <laughs> and but then they want to talk about founding fathers and what they were. You know, it's like it, it's the the irony is just. Well, the, yes,
2: and I, and also you got, you, I mean, you can't get over the fact that a lot of the people that I know who voted for Trump, and I didn't live in a bubble. Half the people I know voted for Trump, half the people I know voted for Clinton. And, um, I knew women who had voted for Obama who changed their vote to Trump. I knew gay men who voted for Trump. But they were, it was all about business. It was mm-hmm. about yeah. stuff, and they, they weren't like it was a kind of a pick and choose thing mm-hmm. that this is better for me than, or, or I want this to happen more than I want that well, to happen.
3: The one thing that he did that I that I do like, and it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, disruption.
2: Disruption. Oh, I completely agree. The disruptor. And, yes.
3: And it, he is the ultimate disruptor because I was not a Hillary supporter, and no, for not being a Hillary supporter, I was like. I was the devil in Hollywood. Oh, yes. How, how can you not possibly support Hillary? How? Why sh- do I have to vote for Hillary just because I'm in Hollywood? Yeah. I
2: didn't
3: – full disclosure, I didn't vote.
2: I didn't vote either. And I, I just, talked about this on the podcast. I did. I could not do it.
3: Yeah. So I was just like – but there was no way I was going to vote for, for Hillary and I wasn't going to go in and vote for Trump either. Yeah. So I'm just like, I'm out of it. You know what? Give us candidates who aren't, um, you know, uh, uh, legacy can- – or, you know, another Clinton or another Bush or give us people that will actually make a difference and that aren't career politicians that's one thing that I did like about Trump yes I did that too. he was not a career politician Yeah. That's about where it ended. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> and there were some business aspects <clears throat> yeah, of it too. But, but, I, and, but I also did appreciate the fact that he wasn't PC. He didn't, he, he didn't let himself be censored. He said what he thought. Yes. Whether it was right or wrong, you knew where you stood with him. While somebody like a other politician like Hillary or somebody else, they're going to tell you what you think you want to hear. Trump just said what the hell he was thinking. Right. And still unfortunately still does. <laughs> he does.
2: But it was thrilling. I mean it was certainly thrilling in the primaries and into the into the election. But the other thing that people don't talk about out here is that Beverly Hills voted for Trump. Beverly Hills mm-hmm. went red yep. in a sea of blue. And it's kind of like, you know, I and again, I don't know I mean in Hollywood perhaps it's that pervasive, but I saw a lot of strange things going on in LA about this election. Of course California was always going to vote for Hillary, right. it was not ever going to change. But there were there were <laughs> whisperings and secret dinners where people were saying, well, I have Hollywood-owned businesses and I can't really come out on Facebook or anything yeah. and say that I am going to vote for Trump. And I had this dinner and I talked about it on this podcast. It was in February of 2016 and I don't know what Trump had done, but I was at a dinner with four uh, – two couples uh, who worked in Hollywood or had had worked in Hollywood and now we're into other Hollywood businesses and um, – it was this strange moment where everyone, you know, a couple drinks into the dinner. Trump had done something that day. We're still in the primaries. And one of the women, after a second glass of wine, said, you know, I'm sick of it. I, I like him. I, I, want, I think I want to vote for him. The other couple was so relieved, said, oh, well, I think we are too. <laughs> and this was in West Hollywood. Oh, well, kind of the Beverly Hills group. And then, and, and young, they were in their 30s or 40s and talked about how much I liked Trump. And then I remember that I went and tweeted about this when I got home that night and shocked that, you know, this had happened, it was funny. And so anyway, so this tweet goes out. And uh, literally the next morning, I had like 10,000 people retweeted it, including Donald Trump. So it was someone had really paid attention to it. produced reflected to some degree your personal interests. There's poker, there's social media, military professionalism. And you've said you like to make films a guy like you would want to see. You said you wouldn't make Eat, Pray, Love, for example. And you've also said that you'd like to read more lit as opposed to chicklet, books about guys doing amazing things that other guys would like to read. But your approach to produce Fifty Shades of Grey... For anyone who listens to this podcast, knows that I um, had uh, Kelly Marcel, the sole credited screenwriter of Fifty Shades of Grey, on this podcast—the only interview Kelly did—and um, uh, one in which she talked about her experience on that movie. And because of the kind of trolling prankster thing I did on Twitter about trying to get the Fifty Shades of Grey screenwriting gig, though it was also completely genuine, people are contradictions. Okay, I really did want to write that script. I got to meet Kelly via Twitter after she got. The gig, and I had tweeted some jokingly angry things about what the hell is this woman getting to write Fifty Shades of Grey, and how does she get hired? And Kelly reached out, and we went and had drinks, and got to become friends. Um, the last time I think we saw each other, Dana, was at uh, Michael De Luca's office on the Sony lot where I was meeting you and Michael for a, a polite meeting about writing the Fifty Shades of Grey script. I had been warned by my manager at the time that it was most likely going to be a female screenwriter. And according to Erica, a.k.a. the author Yell James, whom I met later and confirmed this – it was a meeting to offset my Twitter trolling about getting the screenwriting gig because it was being picked up everywhere in the entertainment press and on social media. And legions of women started following me on Twitter um, and because I was posting pictures of hot guys who I think should be playing Christian Grey and became kind of this, this, this social media game I was playing. I think I knew that once I was in that office on that afternoon that this was a cursory meeting with you guys and that whatever I pitched in terms of how I would adapted, making the kids more realistically American, I think was one of my, one of my ideas, was going to be nullified by E.L. James, who I had reached out to a couple of times on Twitter, nudging her into hiring me to write the thing, and she completely ignored me. When I met E.L. James later at a birthday party at Rob Pattinson's house, who was E.L.'s first choice for Christian Grey, she said she had been Bothered by my social – my vocal social media presence and hoped a meeting with you, Dana, and Mike DeLuca would diffuse the situation. And I guess it did. After seeing Fifty Shades of Grey, the weekend had opened. I got it. It was a fantasy and glossy and it was very much more more palatable uh, than the book. And it was beautifully produced and it was nothing like what I had wanted to do with it, which was staying completely true to the action of the book yet making it realistic. Just in the face of its massive financial success, what a fool I was. (laughs) And yet I guess the thing I want to ask is, could Fifty Shades have been a different movie in today's global market? And I know this is going to be a loaded question and kind of beside the point when a movie makes over half a billion dollars globally. But the idea of it being a movie that could have made money and maybe gotten good reviews, was that ever in play? It was something that Kelly Marcel thought was possible and Sam Taylor Johnson thought was possible. Even Charlie Hunnam thought was possible. I was at a dinner with Dakota Johnson uh, a couple months ago who said, that her and Jamie Dornan were praying that I would get hired at point to some point to rewrite stuff but I know you're friends with E.L. James, and I totally respect your diplomacy about what you're going to say. But if Erica had not insisted on having as much control as she did, would it have been better if the screenwriter Kelly Marcel, hired by E.L. or the director Sam Taylor Johnson, also approved by E.L., were allowed to do their jobs? Would it have been something different? Maybe a movie that got people who were making fun of the books and the whole Fifty Shades of Grey thing to see that there was something really there in the first book that could have made a really good movie? I asked this yet, no, dude, it made a fucking fortune. What are you talking about? <laughs> Who gives a shit if people think it's a good movie or not? And I have to say, I also get, uh, I, I get Erica's control because I now take my cues from Erica in terms of how she designed her deal. And not only about future adaptations of my books, but also my original scripts. I mean, she made the movie that she wanted to make from her material. And I have to respect her for that. I'd rather not have my movies made now at this age than made badly and without my control. What are your thoughts that? about all of this
3: yeah of course it would have been a different movie making a movie is like making a meal i'm not a cook but i know the types of ingredients that you put in and they, they vary slightly it's going to change the the outcome of, of good. the dish everything that you put into the process affects the the outcome um erica did have a lot of control and while it was difficult at times for for some people the one thing that that we knew is she knew the fan base yes and what they what they wanted that's it and ultimately what what we gave that fan base is what erica wanted to give them and that's what they wanted um and as the box office shows that um did we think we were going to get rave critical reviews or be up for awards no totally didn't know it or or totally knew it that it you know that that wasn't what it was for um and it was to meet the uh desire of the fans the best we could. And and you as an author, you know, when somebody reads a book, it's theater of the mind. Yes. So when you read Fifty Shades, you're envisioning somebody completely different and envisioning a completely different different way. And both the characters, the scenes, in, and if I'm reading the same book, I might be seeing it this way. And 15 other people see it 15 different ways. And that's the one thing I've always – as a producer and and most of my movies have all been book adaptations. Yes. Is the most difficult thing is how do you take that story that people are reading the book of and translate it to the screen that will entertain them and meet their expectations in a way? Because you're going to disappoint people and particularly something like Fifty Shades just starting with the casting – and we were under such a microscope from the fans that you know there was such a spectrum of who they thought should be Christian Grey and who they thought should be Anastasia. Oh, I know. <laughs> I was stoking those flames, yes. <laughs> oh, I know. <laughs> um, and so part of the decision to go with Jamie and Dakota was more because they were unknowns. Yeah,
2: and great choices, by the way.
3: And we also knew that that was a time for us that – and it's very seldom you get that chance to make movie stars or to make yeah. stars. And that was going to be a chance to do that and they didn't come with any uh really preconceived notions of you know dakota had done some television she was in social network for a small scene uh jamie had had only done um the fall and you know some other small stuff but people really didn't know him so that worked to our advantage because it allowed the fans to discover these these actors as these characters at the same time as opposed to you know whoever they thought it should be um in in either role or in, in any of the roles we had literally people come in for every single role in the book um so while erica did have a lot of control ultimately it was to serve the fans as as opposed to our uh our creative abilities um because she really didn't know what was best for that movie
2: With your help, Dana, let's explain to listeners what Relativity Media was, is, was Relativity is a studio founded by Ryan Kavanaugh in 2004. And it was a middleman company arranging multi-film slate deals with studios and then arranging financial support through banks. Relativity would receive film equity, producers' credit, and a fee. Does that sound about right in terms of what it started out at in 2004? Now... What happened to Ryan Kavanaugh and Relativity Media by the time 2015 rolls around, 10 years later, before you ultimately come into the scene, is very different. The decade makes a huge difference in brief layman terms without particularly getting personal about, it, I think, what happens in that decade to a place like Relativity? What happened between 2004 and 2015? I mean, is there a story? Is there a narrative that people more or less say, well, this is kind of what happened? Is it just the business? Or is it Kavanaugh? Or what was it that kind I, of moved it into that direction?
3: I think it was a combination of of both of those. Ryan is he's he's a genius in a a lot of ways, and to start it from what relativity began as to to its high point, not to what it became, but to its high point was phenomenal. Particularly to start a studio um, in this business and have it be as successful as it was um, is is you know amazing, Uh, and uh, I I can't think of in many other words. Um, What ultimately happened with it is. You know, again, it's just what you read or hear. I yeah. wasn't there, but there were financiers that were involved, and movies don't work. Financiers don't get paid. People, you know, start to collect. That's you know, it ultimately ended up going to to bankruptcy. Um, where I came in and uh, was involved was it was in bankruptcy. They, Ryan was trying to bring it out of bankruptcy. Um, I went in and met with him and his uh, new financier at the time, and. They wanted me to run the studio. You'd
2: be president of it, and yeah. they they kind of took in Trigger Street, didn't they? Yeah. And uh, uh, Kevin was going to be chairman.
3: Yeah, and then so and w- and I would have all the creative control and run run the um, the production side of the business. Which, for a producer like me, if you're going back to everything we were talking about before, of how difficult it is to get a movie made, like you know the movies I'm known for, um, and just where I think the business is is going in the wrong direction in the direction I think it should be going, Mm -hmm. what better place for me to be than the head of a studio, picking the movies I want to make, having all the creative control, and basically dictating the types of films that we want to make. I get to be the one to pull, pull the trigger on them um unfortunately we never got the runway we were able to pull it out of bankruptcy get it up and going again uh, but the financing that we thought was ultimately going to come in never happened so a lot of people thought that i was crazy going in and taking it just because it was you know tumultuous time for relativity and my whole thing was look it's bankrupt when i'm coming in it can't be much worse so if we come in and the financing comes in and i'm able to make some movies and even even just to make a few movies would have been a success for me because you know look i'm a producer i'm a whore when it comes we do anything we we can to get a movie made so even getting a few movies made would be considered a success for me there but hopefully that we the hope was that we'd be able to get it up and going and turn the studio around and then up and up and going if it didn't work No harm, no foul, as far as I'm concerned, because like I said, the studio was bankrupt when I when I came in, so it couldn't get any worse. And so ultimately, I was there for about eight months and just I never got the runway that I thought I was going to get and realized that I should go back to just producing and doing what i what i do best and what i what i've done best and that's where i'm at now
2: does your partnership with spacey end in terms of the creative partnership
3: yeah so that was that ultimately uh brought the culmination of that because we had to dissolve uh trigger street into relativity as i went in he ultimately didn't take the uh the chairman role and but i continued on um into into the company and he's focused more on you know he's he's back to being an actor he's you know not running the old vic anymore He's doing House of Cards. He's done a few movies, and he's focusing on that. And so, once once you know everything, when I decided to uh, to leave Relativity, I it was a great time for me now just to be on my own and and do my own thing.
2: As a father, you were on Twitter after the Manchester bombing at the Ariana Grande show last week. And you kind of attacked the sentimental narrative of vigils and posts from celebrities about understanding and forgiveness and compassion, and that you felt this was kind of misguided and illogical. You tweeted something along the lines that if you love cancer, it's not going to love you back. And I think Manchester was the tipping point because there were people who thought, Adrian, First of all, should have released a statement saying that this was an atrocity and that we need to stop the people who are killing my fans with nail bombs and step up and say this is unacceptable and something needs to be done. There was a kind of muted response to the share the love kind of thing that was going out. People were putting out there, but there was a little bit of pushback. It was seemed that Manchester stepped over a line somehow. And definitely Katy Perry was attacked uh, in social media for her saying, everyone needs to be loved and we have to accept everyone. But I know these are girl pop stars. I get it. I I, I get where they're coming from. But you tweeted first, you noticed that CNN and MSNBC weren't immediately dealing with the immediate aftermath of the tragedy because they were busy covering Russian conspiracies and they didn't want to cut to whatever – and then you tweeted, we're told today to not be fearful of the terrorists who want and do kill us, but then told to be fearful of our elected president. What the fuck? Uh, I think one of your tweets was in reply to something Jay Duplass, the brother of Mark Duplass, who posted, um, uh, despite our fear, we owe it to all victims of Manchester, of the Manchester attack, to choose to act with love. What was your reaction to all of this and what is your um, feeling about uh, the celebrities' reaction to Manchester,
3: um, it's, it's it's similar to the reaction about Trump and their Pendleman swings. You know, if we're, I mean, look, I said it in the tweets, and it's 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 just it, it infuriates me so much. I mean, mm-hmm. these are motherfuckers who want to kill us, and you we, we need to kill them with fire they need to be taken out and we can be as politically correct as everybody thinks that we need to be and it's that's not going to save lives unfortunately there's hard decisions that need to be made remember you know what how many weeks ago was it everyone was protesting about trump you know, closing the borders to certain countries. Mm-hmm. Everyone's forgot about that one now because we're on right. to the next yes. one. But there is a reason for that. It's not saying everybody needs to be banned, but there does need to be a vetting process. Yes. And it's continually it's like as soon as you say that, you're anti immigration or you're a racist or you're you know, you're whatever that because you think that people that do want to harm us from their certain country not all of them, but it only takes one that we need to put a little bit more scrutiny on it. You know where we need to show more love and we need to do everything that that people are asking us to do? If it's something like... Uh, you know the the uh, was it Proposition Eight or whatever it was about, you know all the anti-gay marriage and mm-hmm. all right, that. Yeah, yeah you know what that that's you show love there and you treat everybody the same there because right. as far as I know homosexuals aren't trying to kill me right so I have no problem with that things like that yeah show fucking love let's let's you know spread 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 love spread mm-hmm. peace do you know do it all then but not fucking people that want to kill us and who have a different ide- ideology than we do. And if, if, I think if you want to live in any country or be a part or be a citizen of any country, you should at least share the same desires and thoughts and wishes that the country that you want to immigrate to does.
2: But this this feeling uh, that's out there isn't just generational. I see older people, younger people. So there was a, there's been a shift and it really does have to do with I think the exhibitionistic quality of social media of revealing yourself, showing that whether it's virtue signaling, which is a big mm-hmm. thing, look at how compassionate I am, whether you are or not, just right. that urge to do it. Just like the urge to like everything on Facebook in a way to be this kind of fake neutered person when you're really probably just a mass of contradictions. And if you really sat down with me, we'd probably be on the same page. But it's just this kind of um, this corporate ethos in terms of how we should portray ourselves like these kind of clockwork oranges who, you know, only believe in this and extol this and it's all the positive and everyone is good is really part of the problem with the culture right now
3: i think it's the the biggest problem with the culture because there not everybody is good and if you try to think that everybody is and, and or you can make them good you're a fool
2: well you would know you work in hollywood i mean <laughs> maybe
3: maybe that's why i know <laughs>
2: <laughs> um we always ask every guest on the show uh so uh what do you think of the eagles
3: the eagles yeah. um well, I don't, why, that's such a weird question.
2: Uh, we started asking this question. Uh, one of my first guests was Stephen Malkmus of the band Pavement, and he was talking about music that he really didn't like. And he started talking about the Eagles. Oh, okay. you know, Pavement kind of, uh, you yeah, kind yeah, of know yeah, them, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. So they're, they're art right, rock. Well, so, and so he said, he said, oh man, I hate the Eagles. Those rich hippies, you know, their mustache rock and that the peacefully <laughs> <laughs> money. I just can't fucking stand them. And then I kind of started defending them because i do like Uh, some eagle songs and i realized i like hotel california and i'm and i I don't know so we kind of got into a back and forth and i just started asking everybody this question all
3: right well so the, the eagles growing up in virginia um it's you know it definitely got me through some tough times i had the cassette um desperado mm-hmm.
2: and oh.
3: and it just you know and i'd flip it over and on one side <laughs> to other, from take it easy to you know all and i think it's more just because i only had a few cassettes i think i had like journey and mm-hmm. and uh, bon jovi what you know that yeah. tells you something that's a quite a cassette collection oh and kiss i had kiss too mm-hmm. and metallica
2: any bob seeger
3: definitely bob seeger oh yeah no. yeah i love bob seeger yeah. but uh yeah the uh the eagles saw him in concert once mm-hmm. and uh I mean, come on, Hotel California? You can't, It's like you can't turn that off if that comes on. And whatever that guy from Pavement was saying, peaceful, easy feeling, whatever. I Living in the hills of Virginia, I had no idea how much money they had. It's like, whatever. I didn't give a shit. <laughs> <laughs>